Hey there. Ever dream of making your own podcast? Let me tell you a little bit about Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. First, it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Why Are You Like This, a podcast devoted to finding out who we are and why we do the things we do. I'm your host, Ryan Andrews, and I can't wait to giggle with our guest today. Today's guest is a cat parent, an editor, and a writer whose work has been featured in Teen Vogue, Slate, Self, Out, The Advocate, The Body, and the most important publication of all, Twitter.com. Please (laughs) welcome to the mic, Matthew Rodriguez. Hi. Hey, hey, hey. How are you today? I am doing so well. How are you? I'm good. It's a very beautiful day. Yesterday was so cold and today is much nicer. I got full whiplash. Like yesterday I woke up, took my roommate's dog out and I was like, okay, so it's still freezing. And then today I was like, maybe I'll wear a t-shirt. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, uh, I actually woke up yesterday with like, I'm I'm starting to get a sore throat just from like kind of the weather whiplash, mm-hmm. and so I woke up with it. W- woke up with it yesterday, and every day I actually drink like a Nutribullet smoothie because it's like a way of getting of sneaking vegetables into my diet. Otherwise, I would just eat like pizza crusts. Um, this morning, put um, as so uh, Trader Joe's makes this acerola puree. It's like a frozen puree, and I don't know how to say the fruit is it, I think it's acerola or maybe acerola I don't know but it's like this it's, me. <laughs> it's this it's this fruit that has like an enormous amount of vitamin c so like on the nutrition facts at the bottom where it shows you like the per- the daily percentages of everything that's in it it is um one packet which is like I don't know how to describe what size it is but it's not that much it has like 1600% of your daily vitamin c in one packet um and i just like put it in my smoothie this morning so i was like i don't want to be sick i can't we can't get sick these days any little bit of cold feels like uh full-on death yeah i see here's my thing with vitamins i know they're good for me but i don't understand how i can get like 16 million percent of my daily value of a vitamin and that not be bad well, that's the thing is like, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, you worry, I guess the other side of it is like, you worry is like, if I'm getting too much vitamin C, well, there it's like, if you don't get enough vitamin C, you get scurvy. Is there like an opposite of scurvy that is also bad when your body is just juiced up on vitamin C? <laughs> You're just too immune to things. Right. Yeah. Did you have any like strange, uh, not real facts about vegetables growing up? For example, I'm thinking about carrots. And if you eat too many, I was told I would turn orange. But wait, okay, here's the thing. There was an episode of of Magic School Bus Uh where they, it wasn't carrots, but it was like, it was an episode, you know, like the nerdy kid who was always really scared on a Magic School Bus with the glasses and the red hair? Mm -hmm, The Chucky. In the episode, what was his name? I don't know his name, but he was the Chucky of Magic School Bus. (laughs) Right. He, so in the episode, he turned orange because he ate too many like almost like they look like Cheetos. Like he was eating this snack that was Cheetos and he actually did turn orange. And this episode of Magic School Bus argued that if you eat too much of one food that is the same color, your skin actually does change colors. I swear this is a Magic School Bus episode. Does that apply to all food? I don't know. Like, okay. Oh, his name was Arnold, Uh. I think. But yeah, wait, now I'm looking it up actually. So... (laughs) We have to know. This is a factual podcast, first and foremost. Okay, so the name of the episode is Goes Cellular. The Magic School Bus Goes Cellular. It's the 45th episode of the series. Arnold is completely orange. 
and he can't wash it off. And they go inside him and they find out that this snack that he's been eating is like, it's, they're called seaweedies and they look like green on the outside, but underneath them, they're actually orange. And it argues that his skin was changed to orange because of what he was eating. I can't be, I can't be blamed for my fear of too much vitamin C when all of my childhood programming was like this. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, okay, okay. Arnold is actually suffering from keratinosis, which is the orange discoloration of the outer skin due to the excess intake of carotenoids. The orange pigment is actually not named in the episode. Um, This episode may even be the only notable depiction of keratinosis in fiction in popular culture. Groundbreaking. Yeah. (laughs) So it's called keratinosis, and it is a real thing. So, so Matthew, besides the Magic School Bus, were there other shows that you watched uh, as a youth that kind of shaped who you are as a grown person? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm really, I, I want to say first and foremost that it's Buffy, and it's such mm. a hard time for Buffy people, you know? Um, I think I, and I've watched Buffy when it was first on the air, and so I'm 31, and Buffy ended season seven ended in 2003 when I was in eighth grade I was 14 so like I was watching it really young when I was probably too young to be watching some of what was going on in the early seasons I I started in season three because my mom read that it was that it was like good and she was and she knew that I would like it because it was like magical and stuff so we she kind of picked it as a tv show that we would watch together and so we watched seasons three through five together and then she stopped when it switched channel when it's when she died and it switched channels but I kept going because I was obsessed with it so Buffy had a big big influence on me um as a little fag like I just loved I loved Buffy but I loved Willow and obviously for you know spoiler alert for those who have not yet seen Buffy that that Willow turns gay or excuse me Willow enters a relationship with a woman she could also feasibly be many sexualities including bisexual pansexual etc um, so it was huge representation for me as a kid. Um, and there was just so much in it about like, it, it, I always tell people that Buffy kind of has like the same message as Ratatouille that like greatness can come from anywhere. <laughs> yeah. I had literally started like my first adult rewatch, maybe a week before Charisma Carpenter came forward. Mm-hmm. And I was like, cool, I am knee deep in this right now. But I remember watching, I I know that I watched Buffy as a kid, but I distinctly remember watching the finale of Angel with my dad. Mm. And like, I can remember like hell opens and they're like, what are you going to do? And it's like, well, I w- always wanted to fight, insert some name of a demon and then it ends. But I've only seen that once. You know, I started Angel, and I've started Angel, like, twice now, and I can never stay with it. There's some, there's, I think, a a moment kind of, like, in season two or three where I just start kind of, like, losing the threads, and I don't go back. Mm. Um, But I've rewatched Buffy probably eight or nine times, because I, I watched it the first time it was on, and then when I was, and then I, every time a new DVD set came out, I went and got the DVD set and would rewatch the DVD set in order. And then I remember once I got all the DVDs, I did a watch through, like once the seventh one came out, I watched all of season seven and then went back and watched one through seven. And then I remember I watched it again as a kid or like when I was in high school and I watched it and actually took a tally of how many vampires were killed in every season and then started doing mathematical equations of like, how, what are the average amount of deaths per season and all this stuff. Um, and it was like real nerd shit. Um, and then I watched it like twice through in college cause I introduced other people to it. And so I rewatched it with them. And then I've, I've since college, I've rewatched it twice, which I, I mean, I'm 31. So I, you know, I graduated college 22. So in the last nine years, my, my intake of Buffy has slowed, no, uh, has slowed down. And I, one of the rewatches was because I was on, a Buffy podcast that I'm no longer on. And then during quarantine, I introduced my roommate to it and watched it all over again. So it's a huge part of who I am. Um, but obviously, you know, who I am, 
as with everyone, um, complicates and complexifies over time. And there are parts of Buffy that I've had to leave behind. So I heard from my bosses this kind of philosophy of like, take the best, leave the rest. And I kind of think of that about that with Buffy and that like when I watch it, there are so many things that I need to glean that I still as a person want to glean from it and learn and I take those, but there's so many messages that are kind of harm, not harmful. I, I think that people throw that word around too much, but they're not useful to me as a person in helping me grow. And so I need to like let those slide off of me and not absorb them kind of. And so it's um, kind of helped me be a more conscious a conscious media consumer because it's, um, you know, when I rewatched it recently, it's like, I'm so much more of an adult of an adult now. And I've learned so many new things. And so when I watch it, I'm very much able to discern like what is a useful lesson and what is an unuseful lesson. Yeah. I think that's a thing that like people in their late twenties, early thirties are all kind of reckoning with, with the things that they found formative Mm. um, where it's just like, you have to remember that it was made at one specific time, whether or not it was good or great or bad. And then that we grow and what we take from it. Like it doesn't make what it doesn't make it less special to you. It's just, you have to like grow and adapt with what is important to you at the time. Well, you know that I think what's really interesting from that too is, you know, uh, this summer, this past summer, there was a really good essay in Vulture um, by Stephen Thrasher, who's an amazing black queer journalist. And he, it was, but it wasn't like a piece of journalism. It was more like an essay. Um, he wrote about how that episode of the Golden Girls was taken off of Hulu because of the supposed blackface when it was really just them like in facial masks, like, like putting cream on their face. And he wrote this really great essay about how much he loves the golden girls and how that's not even like the most racist episode, a moment in the episode because the episode is about uh, Dorothy's son marrying a black woman. And they make a lot of jokes about black people in the, in the episode. Mm -hmm. And um, he made jokes about being a black queer person, having to watch the show and like knowing if there are episodes that he needs to avoid or just being a conscious consumer of things that he loves. Cause he talked about even like, if you watch the golden girls, which I don't, do you watch the golden girls, Ryan? I don't, I know. I mean, it's fine. I'm never <laughs> one to shame someone for something they do or do not watch, but like there's a, a recurring joke on the show that like Dorothy was impregnated by her husband, Stan, while she was like sleeping on their first night of marriage. Like she woke, <laughs> like she, she always jokes like, I woke up and Stan was on top of me being like, was it good for you? And like, then I was pregnant. Oh, no. And so like, that's a recurring joke on the, on the series. And like, he talks about how lightly like rape jokes are taken on the series too. And it's like, you know, so there's so many things that are in media that we love that we also just need to be conscious of and say like, okay, this came from a writer's pen and like it's from another person and whatever, societal lessons that we have that we all have learned whether it be about rape culture or anti-blackness are going to be filtered through that pen onto the page and onto the screen and we need to be able to like have our thinking caps on even when we're watching a show to relax and be able to like not absorb that message and also to like be on alert for it but you know you can still watch the golden girls (laughs) i feel like there was such a quick like run to edit things that have already been made and have already like like golden girls for example has already been syndicated has already done all of the things that will continue to make those people money mm-hmm. and then i am just not quite seeing that same effort to just create content now that is like kosher <laughs> I feel like there's like a quick and it just feels like a quick and easy band-aid if we say, oh yeah, we went through like the Muppet show and edited things as opposed to creating something new that is inclusive. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, well, yeah. Well, also I think like media companies get to bypass converse, really hard conversations about who's working behind the camera when they do that. Like, mm-hmm. 
And it's really a way of throwing the writers of the Golden Girls under the bridge and saying like, well, they were racist and we were, and we're going to fix this by erasing their work as opposed to working on like who we hire now or what we're producing now. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, we're not far. We're like three years away from Tina Fey writing an episode of Kimmy Schmidt. That's all about like how people are too PC and like makes like blackface jokes. Right. And like, they have that student group that like the acronym is rape. Right. Or mm-hmm. something. And, and do you remember that episode? Yeah. It like, it's like, we're not far from that mindset and we're, we're not far in any capacity from rape culture or anti-blackness just because some people decided to be woke for three months last year. Like that is something that is still with us and something that we need to think about when we consume and create culture, because we need to realize that all media is going to reflect culture. So, you know, it's, it's really thorny and complicated. You know, I was, I was even watching, I mean, I don't know if you've seen, but there's been this thing brewing this week over that show, Ginny and Georgia. And I'm not talking about the Taylor Swift thing. Oh, I was like, I saw the Taylor Swift of it all, but I also saw it go for it. Well, yeah, well, there was that clip that was going around where, like, the two biracial characters are, like, arguing with each other about who's more biracial. And, like, people got so mad about it. Obviously, there's bad writing. And obviously, like, there's a problem with diversity in the Ginny and Georgia Georgia writers room. And that's what a lot of people were, I think, were were, um, pointing to, which is that, like, a lot of the writers on the show were white. And they were, like, writing these biracial characters and having them say things that they would never say. And I think that's important to raise, but like, there's also this sense of like, okay, you can raise those issues, but you don't have to like attack the writers. Like, it's like, you know, and even with the Taylor Swift thing, like, it's funny, people were attacking a black actress on the show on her Instagram because of what Taylor said. And I saw a tweet that was like, don't attack the black the black actress, attack the writer. And it was like, how about we just like don't attack anyone? Yeah, like you don't have to attack that's the thing. And maybe this is just because both of us are creators. I can't assume that every person understands how many people are involved in creating anything. Music, film, writing, what have you. Mm-hmm. But you're right, there does seem to be this like want and need to be like well it is the writer or it is the actor or it is like there are so many people that saw that draft that saw it get filmed that filmed it that you know what i mean it's like it's a larger group and maybe just the abstract of that is too hard for people to deal with or understand or wrap their head around Yeah, I mean, that's when we say it's systemic, that's exactly the problem is that like, in order for something to make it to Netflix, there's so many, there's so many layers that has to go through before it it gets to the screen where we select it after searching for 15 minutes, you know, like, it's obviously a systemic problem if a scene, well, no, 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 it's a systemic problem when certain scenes get through. I'm not convinced that it's like a problem that a scene with bad dialogue or flat characters got through because like there are bad there's bad dialogue and flat characters in every in like so much media in books in TV, you know, like there's also just like a room a, a level where sometimes I'm just like let let some shit be bad, you let know, it, like yeah. Some shit is just going to be fucking bad. It's not all prestige television. And I mean, with the Netflix of it all, once you let that go, you're fine. But the, but the reality is, I think that the bigger problem that people are pointing to is that it sucks that like a bunch of white creators got to create a sucky show when there are black creators that probably could create a better show. And that is ultimately what I want to get behind, yeah. you know? But it's like, at the same time that means pressuring Netflix. It doesn't mean pressuring the people. Like one thing that I'm really um, passionate about is like with this whole thing about whether they're talking about gays over COVID or COVID or whatever, like my thing with shaming and kind of like the way that we talk to people online is like shaming people doesn't work, but shaming institutions does. Mm -hmm. And I think that we always have to have our eye on the bigger picture. So like if you want Netflix to back more diverse creators like attacking writers and people on the show is not going to be the means to that end right like the pick the big picture is 
ultimately like talking to like, you know, making your voice heard to Netflix. It's sending Netflix an email, tweeting them, all these things. But like, so, you know, institutions are what responds to that kind of criticism. Individual writers might, like you might be able to speak to a writer and not shame them and say like, you might want to like think about how you write a biracial character next time and that could Mm -hmm. work. But, like, you know, ultimately we're talking about telling Netflix, like, please demand, you know, you are in charge of your writers' rooms. Make sure that your writers' rooms are diverse. Don't let white creators just hire all white writers' rooms, you know. And, you know, have a pro- – I know they already have programs for diversity, but, like, up your your thing – your, you know, um, programs to have more – you know, find more writers of color and then filter them directly into into your writers' rooms and stuff like that. There's so many ways to go about it, and I just feel like the the, the knee jerk reaction is like anger at uh, at the creators. And I'm like, I'm I'm a creator, and I'm writing a book right now that has so, you know characters from so many diverse backgrounds and many that I don't share. And like, I get scared if my novel is going to be received in that way but like ultimately i don't want to create a world where everyone on the page is just some fat latinx guy yeah because that's the other end of the coin it's like i don't want to only write about my own experience because then i don't know if that broadens anything for anybody but it yeah as i mean yeah you're right it's the institution it's it's allowing every every minority group should be able to have an Emily and Perry. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I mean, I would live if that's and I think I said this to someone as a joke the other day. I forget what it was I was talking about, but I was like, you know you've made it when you can see yourself reflected in a bad show. Yeah. Like that is like the pinnacle, like because when everything that you're in is prestige, you're still being pigeonholed because it, that means that like in order for that person to make it, they had to be the best of the best of the best, right? Yep. When you can finally see yourself represented in a shitty television show, that is like, you've made it, mama. Yeah, that is the ticket. <laughs> that is that- the one. <laughs> you're right. I mean, you shouldn't have to be like, well, my story was finally seen on a six-part series on HBO. Like, I want to see me on CBS at 6 p.m. doing something stupid. Right. Like, when Chuck Lorre, you know, is finally ready to make a show about some insecure, binge-eating Latinx fag, like, that is exactly when I will feel like I've made it. And if you're listening, um, Chuck, we just pitched you that, and we'd we'd like the money. I have, oh my God, I would make the fucking best Chuck Lorre sitcom. Yeah. Because I also feel, I mean, like, not me as in, like, my life. I mean, like, I feel like if I were given, and I do not really care for Chuck Lorre sitcoms, though I watched Mom because mm-hmm. um, Alice and Janney and Anna Ferris are able to elevate the material so much, and then later Jamie, Jamie Presley and stuff like that. Um, but, like, you know, if, if, uh, if given the chance, I would love to write like shitty, shitty dad jokes. Cause I'm full of them. Like half the jokes I make in my own life are just jokes about like, I barely even know. Like that's the punchline <laughs> to half my jokes. Honestly, I would just make a sitcom called barely even Noah. And like, that would be the recurring punchline on every episode. It's just too exhausting to walk through life thinking that you're only prestige television. It's yeah. So exhausting. All right. So, Matthew, you are well-spoken, an advocate, a creator, definitely in the know about what's going on. And I have to (laughs) ask you the question, why are you like this? Oh, wow. Well, it's trauma, first of all. It's all (laughs) trauma. Um, I cannot lie. That's exactly why I'm like this. Um, I mean, really, that's what I talk about in therapy all the time, is that, like, everything I do is, like, really this response to feeling inadequate and like how am I inadequate it's because when you are marginalized in America you're made to feel inadequate right like Mm -hmm. you I'm made to feel inadequate because I'm Latinx I'm made to feel inadequate because I'm fat I'm made to feel inadequate because I'm queer and so like my response has been to create this kind of sword and shield 
of busyness and mm. um, bylines and things that actually make me feel like accomplished. You know, one of my biggest problems in my life that I actually just spent my therapy session talking about yesterday was like how often I give my time and energy to things that I don't ultimately feel like doing because like it's going to be good for my career it's gonna be good for this but then like I don't spend time writing my novel that I desperately want to write and it's hard like you know I have such a problem saying no to things because I feel as a, as a queer person of color, like, I feel like if I say no to this opportunity, I don't know, you know, it's like waiting for the L train after midnight on a Saturday. <laughs> you don't know when the next one's coming. Yeah. So you just got to get on. It. So like, I have that feeling about everything. Like, oh, you know, um, I'm not saying anything against this, but like I'm writing a, a cover story right now for a magazine and I'm really proud of it. And I really love the magazine Um, but you know, cover stories take time. You have to do the interview. You have to go through all of the interviews several times. You have to write it and rewrite it. And sometimes when I was working on it, I was like, you know, is this what makes me happiest? And there are so many things about it that make me happy. Like I like working with the editor. I like working with the managing editor. I like, you know, interviewing queer celebrities. And then I'm just like, but this took me away from something else I wanted to do. And it, you know, it's such a struggle to... And I, and I overcompensate all the time. Can I, so, you know, we're recording this on a Wednesday. Wednesday is actually my one day off a week because last year I'm still full time at my job, but I've been doing four days a week because I devoted one day to freelancing and like writing my book and doing all these things that I wanted to do. And it's like, I fill up that time so much. Like now on Wednesdays, I teach at NYU. I write freelance work. I'm working on a graphic novel that's under contract. I'm working on a prose novel. I, um, you know, I'm grading papers. And it's like, I go to bed like exhausted every day. And I just feel like I'm constantly overcompensating for, you know, what I find, what I feel is like, you know, this fundamental lack of feeling secure and loved and all these things. Like, I feel like every time I put something out, I'm like, do you guys like me now? Like, did I write something that you like? Do you like it? Did I finally say something that makes me feel like worthy of your time and attention? It's, it's so, it just runs so deep that feeling of not feeling, not being enough. One, I'm so sorry. Uh, I, I think you're enough. I'm sorry if I like made this a real downer of a podcast. Yeah. No, that's what, I mean, this is literally about figuring out who we are and why we do the things we do so that we can all just be better about understanding each other. I know it feels very specific to you, but it's definitely a, a universal feeling of, I, I'll i just keep making things until a star in the sky shines bright enough that will just tell me that I am, I'm good enough and I've made it. And for me that hasn't happened yet. And I don't think it does. I think it just keeps moving, but it's, yeah, it's exhausting. You know, it's so funny. I I had a dream last, not last night, but Monday night into Tuesday night. And I've started bringing my dreams to my therapist. And it's so funny because the first time I brought a dream to my therapist, I was like, I hope, you know, she's not like, "Um, we're not here to do dream interpretation, girl. Like call (laughs) call someone else for this. And I brought it to her and then we had an actual talk about it. And she said this really amazing thing, which was that she felt like she feels like when you're in a dream, everyone in the dream represents a different aspect of you. And so Monday night to Tuesday night, I had her dream and I I had a dream and it wasn't a recurring one per se, but it's a recurring theme. And you're going to laugh because I have, I've had several dreams about auditioning or being on Drag Race. Nice. Yes. Um, and last night or, you know, two nights ago, I had this dream where I was auditioning for Drag Race. And, but the audition was like in my grammar school, like in a classroom. <laughs> and queens from the show were there like eureka was there kennedy davenport was there like girls from the show were just in my grammar school watching me perform basically to audition 
And for the audition, I had to write an original rap like you would on the show. And I remember walking through the building being like, oh my God, I don't have this outfit. And I found an outfit and it was wild. It was like, you know that like the Rolling Stone uh, image that's like the tongue out with the lips? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was reminiscent of that, but like my head went in the mouth. So my head was like right where the tongue is. And then I, it was like this beautiful pink. And then like from there, it was like pink gown and pink tights. And it was really cute. And, but it's funny, like I didn't make it. I remember being like, oh my God, I don't have an outfit. And I found this outfit somewhere and I put it on. And then I put this really like fluorescent jacket over it. Just and I walked in, I just found it. And I walked in and all the Queens, like their breath were taken away. They were like, oh my God, you look so beautiful. This is stunning. And I was so confident and when I got up to rap, I forgot all the words to it. And I actually mm. fell on the floor and started sobbing. And I was so, because I was so scared of being inadequate in front of these people that I looked up to. And I don't remember who it was, but someone in the dream came up to me and started rubbing my back and telling me it was okay. And telling me that like, you know, it's okay, you'll audition again. This isn't the end all be all. And I brought it to therapy and we talked about, because something we talk about in therapy every week is how harsh I am on myself and how I say things about myself that I would never say about other people. And she talked about, you know, she was like, you know, no matter how how much you show up in a beautiful pink gown, you always are going to be scared that you don't know the words to something. Like, you're always going to doubt. You're always going to feel like it's not enough. And And that feeling was coming through in the dream because I'm going through a lot of transition in my life right now. And there are things that I'm worried about not being enough for. And she was, we were just talking about like how that had spilled into my subconscious. Like, so even in my dream, it was like, you know, I had the most beautiful gown, everyone loved it, but then I still felt like I wasn't enough, you know? And but then also there was this really there when I was someone was rubbing my back and I don't remember who it was. I, it might have been Michelle Bethesda. It might have been someone, anyone. But I was also there was also a comforting voice there, and I'm really happy that the comforting voice was there because subconsciously I think it means that I am building my inner compassionate voice to myself, and that's something that I work on every week in therapy. Is like how do I be more compassionate to myself because I am mean and rude to myself in a way and I don't support myself sometimes I'm not in my own corner in a way that I would never do to other people you had a beautiful gown on and you were ready to go I I truly I mean it was beautiful do you remember what I maybe season two or season three of drag race where they had that like mega clip of like all of these girls auditioned for drag race and we chose like the top 10 and it's like Alaska was in line. Like, it's just like a random shot in L.A. Oh, my gosh. No, I don't remember that. I think it was it might have been the season that Delta Work was on. So maybe was that two, three, three? Delta no. is Delta is two, two, right? No, Delta's three. Yeah, they had like it's it's wild to look at because it's definitely like reminiscent of like an America's Next Top Model moment where they're like, we walked to malls and we found people. But it's like all of these queens that end up on the show or were already like famous in their own right, acting as if they were trying to audition for Drag Race. I'm like, oh, right. Look how far we've come. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that I just wanted to bring up that dream because it was it felt pertinent at the time when I said it. Yeah, of course. I mean. Our dreams tell us things that, you know, we know intrinsically, but it's just hard to like go out in the world and be like a whole and happy person every day. Yeah, no, it's so hard. I've, I started meditating in the mornings to like help me. It makes me feel so much better. I, I found this like five minute guided meditation on YouTube that I do in the morning. And part of the meditation is to like go back to a really happy memory where and like I always think of a memory where I feel really safe or secure or valued or loved and then like I try to bring that energy throughout the day and I also always pull a tarot card in the morning um because my friend Samita gave me a book that is like a tarot workbook for 2021 and part of it is that you pull every day and and kind of pull with an intention for your day um and I did that this morning and I honestly feel like that is what hasn't made it 
able for me to get through the day is like just the grounding of meditation. And then really for me, tarot is like a thoughtfulness tool. Like I use it often to, um, because even just what you were saying about dreams, I think dreams are meant to wade through um, all of the things that are in our subconscious and maybe give us answers or give us, you know, find us ways, find ways through the muck of our own lives. And I use tarot as that tool where like, if I think about what's happening in my life, tarot often empowers me by telling me that like the answer is already within me and there's ways that I can use my power to like forge ahead. So this morning, actually I drew the fool card and like the fool card is one of my favorite cards because it's a major arcana card. And if anyone here knows or doesn't know tarot, I'll explain it really easily. But like the major arcana are like the big cards and they're, they go from zero to 22 and zero is the fool and the fool, you know, all of tarot is really kind of considered the fool's journey in that all of us go from, you know, being someone of little knowledge to going through life and learning lessons. Like the word tarot means lessons. And so we're going on a fool's journey through life of, you know, learning as much as we can. And uh, so we're in a way it's really beautiful to be the fool because it's like nothing but potential energy um, so this morning I drew the fool card and it was actually really comforting to me because there's a lot of things coming up in my life where I feel inadequate and all these things, but like being the fool actually comforts me. Like it's like feeling like there's so much potential energy and there's so much for me to learn. And, you know, you can go into challenges feeling uh, ha like happily naive or happily ready to learn and absorb. So mm -hmm that's kind of where I fell today. Yeah. You have like that limitless potential, which I think is why like as a society, we idolize the idea of youth so much because just like, mm -hmm. as you get older, you have more experience. So it's like, I have had a New York landlord for six years now. So I understand things more and I'm a little more like curt with things. Whereas <laughs> when I first moved here, I was like, sure, whatever. I don't need a wall. Like it's fine. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so yeah that I think that the fool card and the the just ability to be like ahead of me is nothing but potential has to feel freeing and exciting yeah and you know there's also times when you have to take leaps of faith because when you ever usually when you pull the fool card if you're working with like the regular tarot but there's so many different types of you know ways you can depict it but like on the traditional cards he's about to walk off of a ledge and like, or like off of this mountain kind of this precipice. And it looks really precarious, but like there's also times when you have to take the leap of faith and you'll kind of learn something from it. And that was like energy that I needed to bring into my day today just to like get through it. <laughs> Do you find it's easier to like follow these morning rituals that you've set for yourself in the current way that we are living where we just like don't see people or is it harder because you don't have like full human interaction all the time? That's really interesting. You know, like I started doing the tarot thing, like I said, because someone got me the book and I think that I was like crying out in my life for structure. It's almost like when they say like oh, children love structure, <laughs> like it's like I felt so much energy in my life, but I felt that I wasn't um, harnessing it right. And so this morning ritual has kind of helped me harness it um and I think that when I say I wasn't harnessing right it was that like every day was so much the same under COVID that I was kind of languishing and like I didn't know what to do and how to how to do anything mm -hmm. because it was just like what like how do I do anything like it's just so nothingness but then at the same time there was something in the back of my head being like you love reading. Why aren't you reading? You love writing. You want to work on this thing. Why aren't you writing? And obviously part of that productive, vo part of that voice in the back of my head is capitalism, is the drive to be productive. So I don't want to like glorify that voice, but I do think that there were things that brought me joy that I wasn't doing, like reading and writing. Yeah. And my, that voice was saying like, why aren't you doing the things that you love? Because right now, all you're doing, I mean, it is important to nap and it's important to play Overwatch, but I was like playing Overwatch on PS4 and like other games to the point of like, 
I was, I felt like I was stuck on the couch and I wasn't actually doing it to, to disengage or I wasn't doing it to like it have enjoyment. I was doing it to like disappear from the world. Mm -hmm. Um, so I felt it was an unhealthy behavior. Whereas like there were legit times when I'm playing games and I love it and I love the story and it's enriching my life. It was a place where it wasn't enriching my life. Um, so I, was kind of craving a structure and morning meditation and tarot kind of gave that to me. And I have had a much richer, um, I've had much richer days since I've started it. And I've also felt like, um, more just at the ready and more alert and more focused and more in tune with my body and its needs um, there's so many like kind of benefits that it, that it brought me. Oh, that's so cool. No, it's, it's like, I, I've talked about this before on the pod, but just the complete halt of everything and being in the musical theater world, I've just like watched all of my friends kind of have to deal with a little bit of what you were talking about, which was like, it's just so easy, especially in New York city to get into the quote unquote grind of auditioning here because you could just wake up and go to wake up really early stand in line do four or five auditions for things that you don't even know if they want people for and then go home and call it a day and repeat it and it just feels like running into a wall every day but because you're doing quote-unquote doing it and doing the thing um it gives you a sense of purpose and accomplishment and i i think what's been interesting is seeing that being pulled away from everyone and then just kind of reevaluating why you like to do this activity in the first place, why you have chosen to make this a career in the first place and refine that joy and refine that love and hopefully be able to carry a healthier approach to it into the future. Uh, the, the lack of, the lack of routine and the lack of going outside and the lack of looking at the sun. So there's this book that I read last year called nothing to see here. And I think there's something in it. There's this line that I always go back to um, that is about like, you know, looking at the sky actually makes you happier. And then like they're talking to a kid about it and the kid is like, well, what if we just like made screens that look like the sky because it would make people happier. But like, I miss going outside and seeing the sky because it, I think there is something about looking at that expansiveness about like being lost in the blueness or even in the evening. Like there's something about being outside and that that is missing from my daily life. And even just like this, the walk to the subway and the walk to work were, were making me whole in ways that I didn't process until this happened. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I talk about a lot in therapy because I think apartments in New York were not made to be lived in the way that we live in them right now. You know, like my room is very small. My room is an eight by 10 room. And before the pandemic, my room was just a place for my bed. And now this eight by 10 space has become my bedroom, um, my office. It's where I teach at NYU. It's my cat's home. Because I now have, I'm a cat parent to Yuka since the, her name is Yuka Y-U-C-A since the um, pandemic began. Um, so like how many different energies is that in one room, you know, whereas it was before it was my refuge. It was like, okay, at the end of the day, I can go here and know that all I'm going to do is turn on Netflix or like turn on, you know, Pornhub and masturbate. Yeah. <laughs> like that was what my room was for. And now, right now, I'm like at my desk on my computer two feet from my bed and like this is where I write my novel this is where I do work this is like it's become it's where I have therapy every week it's like it's become so many things and to put that pressure on an eight by ten room is unfair you know and it's unfair to me and it's unfair to the room and that's just the reality of where I am right now and so I miss separate spaces so much like one of the things that I miss most about the world is actually before work every day because I I didn't have to get to work till 10 or I don't have to get to work until 10 Mm, and I was actually 
in the habit of like going to a coffee shop near my apartment for an hour every morning and writing or doing something before work. So I would get there at eight, write for myself from eight to nine, and then from and then nine to ten I would commute, you know, to get to work at ten. So it's like I miss that ritual of like having space to write in that wasn't my space. It wasn't close to my dirty laundry. It wasn't close to my PS4. It wasn't, you know, it, it was a, it wasn't, you know, some close to something that I had to clean that was reminding me that mm-hmm. like, oh, I have to clean the bathroom or something. I miss that energy of being outside my space. And that is something that I've had to like wrestle and negotiate with in this new world. It's like, what does the space mean to me? How can I make it the best space possible? Like I've gotten, I've rearranged my room twice since COVID started and I've gotten new furniture because I've needed to find furniture that takes up less floor space so that as my room has to hold many functions, all of those can like live together while also being the place that like my cat eats dinner and drinks water and has a bed. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You described your morning and I just got like so nostalgic for a city I still currently live in well as we get to the end of our podcast here i ask all of my guests this um do you have any questions for me oh gosh what do you miss about um the The before before, time the great before um yeah i am really 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 social um and i don't it i don't know it provides me with what I I gain other people get from like intimate romantic relationships. Like I, I just, for me, friendships are that and have been for a really long Mm -hmm. time. So not being able to see people and like share space with them, um, has really been the thing that I miss the most. I have definitely found ways to find joy in complete darkness during this, but I will say like the reason I live in New York is for the people and for those nights that just turn into like seven different days in one day. And I really Mm -hmm. miss that. Cause like, like you said, like our rooms in New York are not meant to be lived like this. I don't think the city's meant to be lived like this either. Yeah, you know, there was a point during the pandemic where I wondered if I was going to move and buy a house. And it, and and this is because I do have a little bit of money to put a down payment. I mean, in a lot of places, a down payment's only like 3%. So I don't have like, I'm not some trust fund baby. I just like have a little mm-hmm. bit of money. And part of it was like, I think the feeling of paying a lot to live here like it didn't feel good anymore because of what was happening. And, and and just for everyone who's listening, I'm, I am a New Yorker. Like my family is from the Lower East Side and I was born in Manhattan and lived in Brooklyn when I was young. And then even when we moved to Jersey, we were like, I could see New York from my house, Mm -hmm. Jersey. So, you know, I'm, I, I am a New Yorker and I, um, I decided against it for a lot of reasons. There were a lot of circumstances, but also, I think I'm really excited to see what the city becomes in the next few years because a lot of people have left and a lot of people left because they had the privilege to leave. And I know that the city is going to change and I wonder how it's going to change. I mean, one thing for sure is like right now I'm looking for, I'm looking to move and I'm looking at apartments and the cost of apartments has gone down so much. And so I'm wondering if that will attract a different kind of people to New York maybe who couldn't afford to live here before because I'm seeing some amazing prices and like, I'm and it hasn't been like this for a long time. And I'm excited just to see, you know, um, what the city is allowed to do when it doesn't have to bow to developers and all this stuff, because I think in general, a lot of people have, have moved away from the urban lifestyle because I think there's a lot of fear that like, if something like this happens again, people want a backyard and a space where they can isolate or, you know, and not feel like kind of cocooned like you can feel here. I mean, street easy has become my porn. Like I, every oh night. my God. Yeah. No street easy is, is yeah, pornographic. every night. I'm like, I can get what for, wh-? and then I, and then I change zip codes. I'm literally that SNL sketch. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I'm the same way. I'm looking to move and I live in Brooklyn and then I'm moving to looking to move within Brooklyn. It's just like the things that I can get for the same amount of money that I pay now. It's, it's like if I wanted to pay the same amount, the amount of space that I could get would go up so much. Or mm-hmm. if I wanted to pay less for like something similar, you know, it's like either option is open to me and it feels unreal. Yeah, it's crazy. So yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited too. I'm excited to just be outside. I'm excited for summer. I'm excited to like not intrinsically know where my roommates are at all times. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it's just so it's so close in my mind. I don't it's not factual based. I just feel hope in my heart for the first time in a few in a while. So I can't wait. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for all of us. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today, especially on your day off. Oh my gosh, no. That's ex- I was so, so happy that you asked me. Obviously, I know it was, I couldn't make it happen last time, and I really wanted to, so I'm glad that I made time for you, and I'm glad that you invited me back. Any Anytime. Uh, <laughs> where, can, where can the children find you? Um, on an evening breeze Ooh, yes. in, the, in the laughter of a child. <laughs> um, no, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Matthew Rodriguez. That's Matthew with one T, Rodriguez with a G and a Z. And then um, Matthew K. Rodriguez, the K is for Carl on uh, Instagram. And seriously, if you haven't seen anything that Matthew's written, you live under a rock, but check out their work in all sorts of magazines uh literally anywhere you want to find them (laughs) until next time everyone bye bye